This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you hear that sound, the sound of heels walking along a wooden or a concrete floor, that click, 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 where does it take you back to in your mind? You might think of a, I don't know, a powerful businesswoman in the 1980s purposefully walking to her next meeting with big shoulder pads. Or maybe Dorothy clicking her heels to get back home uh, from Oz. Or maybe Tim Curry, there you go, making his first entrance in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. For me... Many, many years ago, I did a television commercial for Martini, funnily enough. Well, Martini V2. It was the kind of little Alco pop versions of Martini. Interestingly, it was directed by a guy called Daniel Kleinman or Danny Kleinman. Really nice guy, brilliant director. We were doing this advert for Martini and we decided, we decided, he decided, we were going to recreate the Italian job sequence. And we'll do the whole thing like the Italian job. So that he cast me and, and a bunch of other guys and we had to wear these jumpsuits. And we did all the stuff in minis and we travelled around to Italy and did all that. It was terrific fun. But he thought, I've got an idea just to make this imagery pop out. Why don't we stick Dallas in a pair of really, really high patent leather stilettos for no reason other than it'll be odd and occasionally we'll get a flash of these shoes of Dallas teetering around doing uh, stuff in minis wearing these shoes and it'll just pop out and it did and uh, if you google the commercial I think it's probably online somewhere you will see me wearing uh, lots of makeup and a, a scarf and a white jumpsuit and black patent stilettos anyway I still got those stilettos and I think of them fondly so whenever I um, think of stilettos I'm cast back to being in Italy many many years ago flogging martini anyway what is most interesting other than that about the history of heels is that the history actually starts on the feet of men, not women at all. And I'm joined by the woman who knows everything about the history of high heels. It's Elizabeth Semelhack, and she's going to be taking us through the history of heels from their original purpose, like why did we need a heel in the first place, to the fascination that society has developed with women's feet in particular. We'll find out why heels have become so sexualized and the role the invention of the stiletto had to play in it. Hello, welcome to Patented. It's a podcast about the history of invention from history hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. I'm not wearing my heels at the moment, but in my imagination I am. Enjoy the episode. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. I'm just actually on the Anthropology website. Uh, we were just discussing oh. Elizabeth's beautiful wallpaper <laughs> behind you. I, I think I didn't know Anthropology as a designer place. It's an American company, is that right? Yeah, it's been around for a while. Yeah. I'm not very up on my fashion. I'm just, anyway, the point is I'm looking at their shoes and they have lots of high-heeled they shoes. They do have lots of high-heeled shoes. It's true. Most people do. Women's high-heeled shoes. There's just something very beautiful, I think, about high-heeled shoes. Like, I can understand, like, why you would be obsessed by shoes. Like, I totally get that. I think that high heels, I mean, we have, one, been trained to find them beautiful. 
but they also, unlike other forms of footwear, are perhaps the most sculptural. Yeah. The arc of the instep, the shape that heels can take, the decorations that we often see on high heels, just that classic stiletto associations with elegance, these things sort of undeniable at this time. Is it the shoe itself or is it our associations with the shoe? So we think of the stiletto, we think of cultural associations, movie stars, women in particular, certain actresses, pops, you know, etc. And so we automatically have an, that association or is it... Pavlovian response? Yeah, or is it like if, you, if a Martian came down and looked at a beautifully made high-heeled stiletto shoe, would they go, wow, that's amazing? Or would they go, what the hell is that? And why on earth would anyone wear something as ridiculous as and impractical? I mean, I think an inquisitive alien might ask the question, why? Why the high heel? You know, many people, if you just casually ask them, what is a pair of shoes? What's their responsibility? And most people will say to protect the foot. And often people will add to help you comfortably walk. And a stiletto isn't necessarily doing either of those things. And so what are the reasons to wear it? And how have we come to see it as beautiful? I'm going to cast myself as the inquisitive alien here <laughs> and, ask the, <laughs> and ask the questions. Why? At some point there were no heels and then there were heels. I mean, I think about Romans in sandals. No heels, and then suddenly the day came. Well, okay, well, let's, we can talk all about the, the, the lovely, interesting cultural things. Can we go all the way back? And when did the first heels originate? And who, who was wearing them? Yeah. So I have never been able to trace the origin of the heel to its actual origin, but I've been able to trace the heel as far back as 10th century Persia. And assuredly, it dates back even further. And so my thesis is that the heel was invented as an equestrian tool to be worn in tandem with the newly designed, newly invented stirrup. And so what the stirrup did to horseback riding really secured the rider. And then what the heel did is further secure the rider in the saddle and the Persians become famous for their ability to stand in the, in the stirrup, to shoot with accuracy. And so the heel was, if my thesis is correct, an equestrian tool used by men for usually military or hunting purpose. That's really interesting. I remember, have you seen, it was years and years ago, you're obviously far too young, but in the 1970s, the greatest television series ever was called Connections. And it was presented by James Burke, who's an English television presenter and one of my great heroes. And it was really looking at different how technology sort of link up to each other. And I remember very clearly, and I've seen it since, episode three, series one, it was called Distant Voices. And it started off on 1066, we're in the Battle of Hastings. And like he was talking about how on earth did the... I can't remember now, the Normans beat the Saxons. They had stirrups. And it was the, he talked about the invention of the stirrup. And the reason why we speak English in England rather than Dutch is because of that. And if they hadn't had the stirrup, then you'd have your shield on your left hand and your spike and your spear in your right hand and away you could go because you could stand up and not fall off. But then they had to put a little back bit on the back of the, back of the saddle so you didn't fall off after stabbing someone. It is unbelievable, and I do know that, that TV show um, as well, that it's the flap of a butterfly's wings, right? I mean, it can be a seemingly small invention that can have incredible cascading effects. And so when I started at the She Museum in 2000, my first question was, the alien we're pretending you are today, was why the high heel? And it never had really been researched. And so that's what took me down this road and led me to understand very unusual origins, and then also to trace how it came into Western fashion, how then it became worn by women, and how it has become this hypersexualized signifier of femininity. Well, before we get onto the feminization of the shoe, let's just let's just stick with horses, because that's really interesting. So we have this new bit of technology that 
as James Burke told us in the TV show, this absolutely changed the world, this thing called a stirrup that suddenly allowed us to fight on horseback and that revolutionized everything. But then it kind of makes sense that now you mention it, because obviously like the cowboy boots, I used to wear cowboy boots all the time because that was the thing. And But isn't it interesting that I think most people don't even think of cowboys or cowboy boots as high heels, but they are. It's a big heel. It it's, a big, it's a big Cuban heel. And presumably was the heel on the cowboy boot designed exactly the same thing for the to fit a stirrup. It was. And, you know, I mean, it is a more complicated history than just it was, but it's interesting. I've read a lot of primary sources from the second half of the 19th century when the cowboys has emerged and the cowboys in the midst of being crafted into a cultural American icon. And yet, even with this hyper-masculine, just like the absolute pinnacle of rugged masculinity, there are so many writers who talk about cowboys and their quote-unquote French heels and that they wanted to wear the highest heels possible and the smallest boots possible. And it's a, a really interesting little moment when there's this awareness of these men wearing heeled footwear and a bit of cultural East Coast discomfort with it. So basically, we go from the utter practicality, this is why one would wear a boot yeah. with a heel for horses, mm-hmm. going through to sort of a hyper-masculinity and, and the sort of cultural references that cowboys have. But also, I suppose cowboys also become sort of gay icons later on as well. There is something, as well as that hyper-masculinity, there is something about the sort of cowboy imagery. I think that dates back to the 70s in clone culture. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and this sort of costuming of this interest in the costumes of hyper-masculinity. The village people, right, are sort of the principal example of those costumes. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you, okay, so the heeled boot, so it's a male thing. Is it a symbol of like, you know, if you can ride a horse and, you've, and you're wearing this, is it a symbol of power? Is it a symbol of wealth because you own a horse? Before we get into the cultural stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's all of those things. It is that you are a horse riding member of the military, that you are a skilled athletic rider. And then the question for me, once I sort of realized that, okay, the heel had been worn in Persia, at least in the 10th century, then I began to look and there are many places in Western Asia where the heel comes to be used. And when there was a huge amount of tension between East and West, you know, the Turks were imaged as heel riders as they attempt to topple Vienna. So this image of the quote-unquote Near Eastern other often featured heeled footwear. And so I'm sort of charting all of these images that are showing up in the West uh, where heels are being worn in images on the dress of Western Asians, but not being worn in Europe. And so then my question was, how in the world did the heel come to be worn in European fashion. So, of course, the answer is never simple. And it has to do with the fact that when the Pope divided the world and allowed the Spanish and the Portuguese to get in ships and begin to go to the east via boat, all of a sudden, access to far eastern and Indian textiles becomes something that doesn't only have to happen overland. Now, the value of having had it be overland is that things came across the Silk Road, went through Venice, and then went to the rest of Europe. Now, all of a sudden, all of that traditional trade is being destabilized by Spain and Portugal, and two countries, England and Holland, are sort of late to getting in the boat game. So they decide to try to go overland, England in particular wants to take the number one thing that it produces, which is woolen cloth. And it takes a whole bunch of it with the brilliant idea that it's going to go overland down to India, sell off all this woolen textile, and in exchange, it's going to bring back Indian cotton and Chinese silk. So they go all the way to India with woolen textile. But what's the last thing anybody in India needs? Yeah, you don't need a lot of woolen in India. You don't need you a sort of not. nice tweed coat. Exactly. Of Harris Tweed. <laughs> but this guy like writes home. He's like, oh my God, we've gotten all the way to India. And the only thing they will buy our woolen textiles for is to make blankets for their elephants. We're coming home. So they're schlepping all this stuff back home and they go through Persia, which was delightfully cold. 
and the Persians were interested in their woolen textiles. And that started trade between England and Persia. Now, Persia had the largest mounted military in the world, and they all wore heels. And Persia, at this exact time, was interested in rising up against the Ottoman Empire, and it was looking for European allies. And so Persia, under Shah Abbas I, is trying to make political connections. England is trying to make economic connections. And all of a sudden, at that time, Englishmen begin to have heels added to their riding boots. It was a concept linked to Persia and Persian military might that brings the heel into Western men's fashion. That sounds very reasonable and very believable. I'm sure when you look at pictures of European royalty back in the day, a lot of them are wearing heels. When did it sort of go from being a, a sort of okay practical thing to fashion to a thing of sort of royalty and, and wealth and class? Pretty soon after it's introduced, it's introduced around the turn of the 17th century. And European men, Northern European men, are having heels added to their boots, their riding boots. And in very short order, heels are being added to everyday shoes. And then women begin to wear heels as well, because just by complete and utter coincidence, there was a moment in women's fashion at the turn of the 17th century going into the 1620s for women to borrow aspects of the male wardrobe as fashion. So women started wearing men's hats and women started wearing elements of other men's attire and changing it to women's attire. And so again, my thesis is that women began to add heels to their footwear in the efforts to appear more masculine as part of this larger trend. There's a famous publication that was made that talks about the masculine woman, and it criticizes her for all of these things that she's adopting from the male wardrobe. And on the cover of this pamphlet, there's an image of the mannish woman contrasted to the womanish man. And the mannish woman wears a man's hat, she carries a revolver or whatever it was at the time, um, a pistol. It wasn't a revolver yet. She also has a sword and she's wearing heeled riding boots. And the womanish man is in flats. Oh, uh, really? That's interesting. And so over the course of the 17th century, both men and women wore heeled footwear, particularly in the upper classes. But the shape of the heels that men wore versus what women wore began to change radically across that century. Men's heels, well, they became very blocky, quite high. You know, that famous portrait of Louis XIV uh, sort of showing his legs and he has his high red heels on from, I think it's 1701, is a perfect example of, well, he's actually making heels part of political privilege, but... Why was he making them part of political privilege? Did he have a did he have a kind of like right? Only I'm allowed to wear high heels. No, but what he he was very concerned with how his court looked. And so I still haven't found the smoking gun, but it appears that he made it so that only people who he had granted access to him and his court were allowed to wear red leather covered heels. And so this does not apply to people in other countries. So, for example, when Englishmen would go on the grand tour, they might come home to England wearing these red heels to sort of show that they had had a continental education or maybe even that they had been granted access to the French king's court. But it became a point of huge division in England to see men wearing red, the French red heel that comment I made earlier about cowboys in French heels comes from this idea of not only gender being wrapped up in the use of the heel, but nationalism wrapped up in the use of the heel is something that happens in the 18th century. Okay, like the Cuban heel. I think of Cuban heels as, you know, the heel you get on a cowboy boot. Is that called a Cuban heel? It's called a stacked leather heel. And I think really a Cuban heel has a specific shape, but I think what you're referencing is the stacked leather heel. It's like kind of slant at the back, if you imagine it's slightly slanted at the back. Correct. Whereas a stacked leather heel can just be a big block shape. But the other thing too, if you go back to the 17th century, and as I mentioned, men's heels and women's heels begin to change. 
women's heels become universally leather covered. They're usually made of wood and they're covered with textile or they're covered with leather. What Louis XIV is wearing in that portrait from 1701 is a leather covered heel. But another kind of heel begins to be worn by men, which is a stacked leather heel. A lot of men's riding boots in the 17th century have stacked leather heels. And somewhere and somehow, the idea that men should wear stacked leather if they're going to have heels and women should wear covered heels if they're going to wear heels is decided in the 17th century, which is why even today, men's Oxfords, they have a little heel. It's always stacked leather. You do not see men's footwear with leather-covered heels. No. <laughs> with the exception That's so weird. of the 1970s. That's so strange. So it's really just arbitrary thing from the 17th century. Arbitrary. And the same, you don't see women's heels often that are stacked leather. Or you can see it, but it's not as harsh a division. But men, if you saw a man in a business shoe with a leather-covered heel, you would notice. It would seem so odd. Isn't it weird how we notice people from what their shoes are? It's a really odd thing. Like if you walk into the room and you're wearing the wrong shoes, like it's really funny. Like I was watching the news before we went on air there and they had just a clip of the director general of the BBC, Tim Davey, and he's wearing a business suit looking like a director general, but he had a pair of white trainers on. I was like, oh my God, that's just, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> it's t- I, I, you know, but just, it's odd how one notices these things. I know. And so when people challenge me and say shoes don't really matter, that exact example that you just gave, that proves my point that shoes matter because they don't seem to matter until they are wrong. It's the business suit and the flip flop or, you know, it's just, wait, what? It's so discordant. Yeah. There is a language, I suppose, a real language of shoes that like, you know, if you're a, if you're a man or a woman, but if you're wearing a suit, it's like, do you wear an Oxford or do you wear, and the type of shoe that you buy and the height of the heel and all these sorts of things absolutely categorically pigeonhole you down certain lines. Absolutely. Interesting. Anyway, <laughs> let's go back. Let's go. Sorry. I'm now thinking about all my shoe choices. Like over the years, I'll come back into heels because that's what the show's about. But I'm just thinking like when I was a, when I was a sort of teenager, it was, you know, at school, there were certain things like you had to wear Doc Martin boots, for example. That was just like the uniform of the tribal uniform. And then you had to wear Converse if you were kind of of that persuasion. Yeah, I mean, I, I often will use a Birkenstock as a perfect example. Well, Birkenstocks, yeah, it's a great example. Because until very recently, if you saw someone in a pair of Birkenstocks, I don't know if it's different where you are or here, but certainly in North America, if you saw somebody in Birkenstocks 10 years ago, you would feel pretty comfortable thinking, oh, they probably vote liberal. They probably believe in recycling and maybe they're a vegan. And so, oh, all of that information can be wrapped up in simply the sandals that they slipped on that day. Interesting. Okay, well, with that in mind, let's go back to heels. So men wear heels, okay, and then suddenly, as you mentioned, women started to borrow men's fashion. I'm thinking Diane Keaton and Annie Hall. That trend where women have been able to borrow from the male wardrobe is longstanding. Is there a point where you see the kind of crossover where actually high heel shoes become very much a female thing and men stop wearing them as a result? Well, that's a very interesting segue to what I'm going to tell you. So at the beginning of the 17th century, when you saw paintings of men and women, men and women are basically the same height. Women are slightly shorter. By the end of the 17th century, men are almost always painted much taller than women. And so something is happening, and it is a shift in gender ideals. By the end of the 17th century, masculinity is now being increasingly thought of in terms of size and physical strength. And femininity is increasingly being considered in terms of daintiness. So it should come as no surprise that Cinderella is written in this, I think it's 1697 by Perot. And of course, the heroine of the story, Cinderella, has feet that are so small that nobody can fit into her shoes because she is sort of the pinnacle of female beauty. Now, that brings to question, what is the heel doing in women's fashion? Because none of us are really Cinderella, most of us are the stepsisters, the high heel becomes incredibly high at the end of the 17th century for women because it's doing a job, which was to hide the majority of a woman's foot 
up under her skirts and leaving just a tiny tip visible under her hem so that women could look like they had smaller feet than they actually did. Even the placement of the heel, which was brought forward and under the instep, truncated the footprint that women left behind as they walked in these extremely high, thin heels. So it's not about giving a woman height. No. What about things like, you know, foot binding and and these sorts of practices? Is that a similar thing where you want to shrink the female foot, like somehow the foot needs to be as small as possible? Well, it's interesting because enlightenment thinking is starting to really creates the gender binary wholeheartedly. Mm. And then it begins to define what those differences are. And one of the things that is sort of being promoted is the idea that all women, regardless of social standing, all women, even regardless of ethnicity, share certain interests and share certain features. And so your comment about Chinese foot binding was then a kind of comment that women were criticized with in the West, which is, oh, you're just like other women in the world. You just want the smallest feet possible without acknowledging culture itself had shifted to privilege women who were smaller. So the fashion is changing as the ideals are changing. But then enlightenment thinking makes this connection between European women and Chinese women saying things like, see, all women are the same. They're all crazy for fashion. And they do these, quote unquote, ridiculous things. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Okay, so we see this transformation. So we've gone from horse riding, practicality, a technological thing to stop people falling off horses. It's morphed into regal fashions for men as status symbols, et cetera, et cetera. And Louis Fourteenth. Louis Fourteenth is famous for his heels, yeah. But he's just wearing them as an item of fashion like okay. every other man. So it's a fashion item, but men. And then suddenly it takes over, women start wearing high heels. And to show feet being smaller, because that's a prized thing, having smaller feet, or it becomes a fashionable thing. And do men's heels get shorter as a result? So this idea of women's beauty being linked to how dainty they are is something that's happening at the turn of the 18th century. Men continue to wear heels into the early part of the 18th century. Again, that famous painting of Louis XIV is from 1701. But there's increasing discomfort about men in heels, and it particularly comes from England. The English begin to posit masculinity as opposed to femininity, even today. Like the best suits come from England, right? 
and the best female fashion comes from France. And so there begins to be this division between France and England where France, the enemy of England, is being posited as overly feminine. And so heels begin to take on the associations in English thinking of being overly feminine. And so I think it's Alexander Pope. He writes a satirical list of rules for a men's club. One of the rules is that no man can wear heels over, I think it is an inch and a half. Otherwise, he will be accused of like self-aggrandizement and kicked out of the club. And so the idea that men might individually stand out or might even be interested in the fripperies of fashion begin to be seen as absolutely antithetical to rational masculinity. And in contrast to rational masculinity, women are posited or their femininity is linked to their love of finery. And so you begin to have a division where men should shun fashion as an expression of their rationality. And women must love fashion as an expression of their femininity. You do see in English male fashion, it becomes very, very conservative. If you walk down Savile Row, which is the centre of men's, not fashion, but suits, it's very conservative. Whereas when we think of the great designers and the great fashion designers, we think of the, of the French, yeah. But only for women. But only for women, yeah. Yeah. And so these ideas that are set centuries and centuries and centuries ago continue to play out in what we mm. choose to wear today and have in fact become naturalized. But they are just things that happened and ideas that have been given to what we wear. By the 1780s, high heels are 100% just something that ladies wear. But then the heel itself gets called into question around the revolutionary moments. And so all of a sudden, a lot of fashion is becoming influenced by neoclassicism. Democracy is a reflection of that. Or neoclassicism is a reflection of this new interest in democracy. And the heel gets ousted from women's fashion by the turn of the 19th century. And neither men nor women are really wearing heels till the 1850s. So the 1850s, something happens. What happens that makes us rethink heels? My actual educated guess and my thesis is that for the first half of the 19th century, anything that sort of smacked of aristocratic excess was shunned. Ideas of like what the aristocracy had wrought across the world was something that many people were not interested in engaging with. But by the middle of the 19th century, women did something upsetting which was they began to fully advocate for the right to vote. And so there was a huge discussion about women and what they should wear, what they can't wear. And all of a sudden, I find it really interesting as women's rational dress is sort of being promoted by women's rights organizations, that suddenly fashion decides that it's the right time to reintroduce the fashion of the 18th century, including a high heel. So the high heel and all of its destabilizing connotations about women, irrationality, all the reasons why women shouldn't be granted a right to public voice is being somewhat expressed through this new trend in women's fashion, which is all 18th century referencing. And so the high heel comes back and is used to convey ideas of femininity. And so it comes back for women and for girls. My friend Kat Young-Nickel, she's done an amazing book, exactly the same period, about women designers who would redesign clothes that allowed them to ride bicycles. So dresses that with like pulleys that you could hook up. And, and it was that whole idea about women taking control over patents and, and fashion and design and liberation. I mean, the bicycle was the first vehicle that women could ride on their own. I mean, up until the bicycle, women, even when they were on horseback, weren't supposed to be astride, God forbid, but you can't ride the bicycle side saddle. And so you had to do things like wear pants, which was considered so outrageous. 
at the time. Her book is great. You'd really love it. There's all kinds of amazing designs of clothes (laughs) designed by women. But I love that. So the idea of the heel coming back was a kind of almost a rebellion, almost a statement of saying, look at us, we can do what we want. We can wear heels. No, no, no. I think the return of the heel was a warning. The high heel didn't accompany the invention of the bloomer. Okay. The high heel was a, oh, remember? Women probably shouldn't have a place in public voice because look at what happened the last time. Look at what Marie Antoinette did, supposedly, to bring down the fall of the French government. Women are inherently irrational. Therefore, they should not be allowed the right to vote. And so I think this return to 18th century fashion in the world of fashion was an attempt to work against women's suffrage. It's also at this time that the term sensible shoe starts to be used. When we use the word sensible shoe, what is connotated? Frumpy, unattractive woman who's maybe too politically engaged for her own good. And so the sensible shoe was equal to rational dress and to those militant women, unattractive, they'll never get married, they shouldn't be a part of public life. The only way to engage publicly was to be attractive, get married and stay the course. Okay, let's talk about stilettos. So we're middle of the 19th century. Is there an inventor of the stiletto? Because the stiletto, suddenly you go from having a heel to having a point, a ridiculous heel, and and an exaggeration of all these qualities and things that we've been talking about. Well, before I jump to the stiletto, I do want to point out that in the 1780s, for example, high heels reached quite high heights. But the challenge with making the highest heel, the highest and thinnest heels possible was that heels were made out of carved wood. You can only carve wood so thin before the weight of the wearer will crack the heel. So shoemakers did try to make very high, thin heels, but they just couldn't pull it off until the post-World War II period. Even in the post-World War II period, when they begin to use steel, I do want to give credit to Andre Perugia, who was a shoe designer in the 20s and 30s, and he was also a shoe designer in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But he had experimented with metal heels, but he hadn't made the thin stiletto until 1951. So in 1951, Perugia, working for Christian Dior, makes what looks like a thin blade of a heel. It's somewhat flattened, incredibly narrow, and has a slight curve to it. It was covered in the newspapers, but it was deemed as too wild, too out there. Women couldn't possibly run around in this kind of avant-garde shoe. But what Andre Perugia had done by using metal was show that metal, thin, thin, tiny little blades of metal, could support the weight of the wearer. And so all of a sudden playing with metal becomes very popular. And by 53, I would say the stiletto had been invented. The other thing too that I wanna say is that the word stiletto was a term that was used in the US and in England to indicate anything sleek and narrow. So the kind of skirt today that we call pencil skirts were called stilettos. You could have a stiletto coat. There was a U.S. fighter jet that was called a stiletto. And so in this post-World War II moment, when Italy is becoming of incredible grand interest, this Italian word stiletto, which means little knife, is being used to describe many, many things, including a type of heel that is getting higher and more narrow and has metal at its core. Was it because someone wore it that it became popular? What was the thing that made it popular? Took it out of the sort of catwalk, the kind of, you know, when you see ridiculous things on catwalk and you go, well, that's ridiculous. And then suddenly it becomes popular. Well, it's interesting because when I first was working on the high heel, I too kind of bought this story, hook, line and sinker, which was in the immediate post-war period, there was a return to very traditional hourglass figure of the female. And Dior was exaggerating that. But by 53, 54, Dior, who was very much the one setting fashion for women, did the H collection. I think he does the H collection in 54, which was ramrod straight, 
there's an article of a man complaining that Dior has taken away women's busts and bums. And so what happens is that this incredible stiletto thinness of the outfits that Dior is crafting are complemented by the incredible slimness of the stiletto heel. And his shoe designer, Roger Vivier, is one of the ones to make the highest and thinnest steel heels. And so it becomes connected to haute couture. It becomes connected to this new standard of beauty. Ferragamo is another incredibly important shoe designer who's also working with steel heels. And so it just kind of takes the world by storm and becomes the kind of heel that women are wearing until 1962, 1963. How much does cinema have to do with seeing American movie stars wearing stilettos? Yeah. I mean, Marilyn Monroe is a perfect example. That wiggle in her walk was very much popularized through her high heel wearing. I have a pair of stilettos. <laughs> okay. And when you walk on stilettos, you walk very differently. You have to walk one foot in front of the other, which kind of accentuates the wiggle. I suppose how much is the shoe designed or made popular because of that, because it makes you wiggle your bum a bit? So um, you might not like my answer, but uh, people will often say, you know, that high heels change the way you stand. And it's true, they can. And, you know, you put your chest out, you put your sort of accentuates the buttocks, but high heels were also very popular in the 1920s when women were expected to have neither, <laughs> um, to have an absolutely flat chest, to look almost boyish, to walk in a, in a, in a not so quote unquote seductive way. And so the way that we also stand and walk in high heels is, I would argue, also culturally constructed. I think that the high heel can help a little bit with that. But I think that we had in the 1950s, this image of this incredibly tight dress, and these seemingly irrationally high heels that caused women to walk in this mincing kind of way that was deemed extremely desirable. But a lot of that, it was performative as opposed to just structural. So 50s, we've got the stiletto coming in. Very interesting. And then you mentioned something happened in the 60s. Because I always think the stiletto is never, it's one of those things that kind of never goes out of fashion. Oh, there's one place the stiletto never goes out of fashion. Where's that? Men's pornography. <laughs> okay, there you go. And that is incredibly important to the history of the stiletto heel. Okay, so what does that tell us? The idea of a naked woman wearing a pair of shoes actually dates back to the invention of the camera in the middle of the 19th century. And what I've written about is how the West has always had images of naked women. If you wanted to see a naked woman, just go to an art museum. But there was something that the photographic image did, which was transform the image of a naked woman from allegorical to contemporary. But since the point of a pornographic image was to show as much of the naked body as possible, how do you pin the naked body in time and space so that you know that you're looking at a woman from the time period you're in? And so you have to choose your accessories carefully because you don't want to cover the important information. So shoes are a perfect way of dating the image. And so all of a sudden, as photographic pornography takes off, the naked woman wearing a pair of high heels becomes almost a pornographic trope. And by the 1950s, this naked woman wearing a pair of stilettos becomes almost cemented in the pornographic memory. And so what happens in the second half of the 20th century is that the stiletto goes in and out of women's fashion, but it never leaves pornography. And every time it comes back into women's fashion, it brings with it pornographic associations, which helps to make the high heel increasingly sexualized over the course of the rest of the 20th century. So it's a kind of self-fulfilling thing. It is. I've argued that the stiletto becomes a form of lingerie that can be worn publicly. So where are we now with the stiletto? Like when, I mean, because people still wear stilettos, is it still hypersexualized, I think? But women like wearing stilettos, so it's... The stiletto now is such a symbol of femininity that you can put an image, just an outline of a stiletto heel on a washroom door, and everyone knows that that's the women's room, right? 
And so somehow this classic form of footwear, which was really only fashionable from 1953 to 1963, and then has come back again and again, it has become cemented in our minds as the most classic form of female footwear. I would argue that the stiletto today is in some jeopardy because sneakers have taken over the world. And a lot of the work that we were having stilettos do for us, such as I'm wearing a pair of very expensive designer shoes. I've spent a lot of money. This is a symbol of status. Sneakers can now do. So my thought at the moment is that I'm wondering if stilettos are going to become a part of dress for special occasions only. So if you think about wedding dresses, the wedding dress itself, its structure often dates back to the 19th century. Women don't wear that style of dress anymore to work. Or they only wear it for special occasions. So I'm wondering if the stiletto will become like that. It will become something that references classic female beauty and will be worn for things like weddings, proms, other formal occasions, but will increasingly disappear from our everyday dress. I've always wondered about wedding dresses because you're right. Like at no other point in your life would you wear a wedding dress, a white meringue style wedding dress. It's such a weird thing. I've always, I've always found there is so much language and you've, you've talked us through very eloquently about all the different languages. Isn't it funny how pornography is such a driver of technology? War and pornography seem to be the big sort of drivers of tech. Yeah. And the stiletto, because the ability to create these extremely thin shafts of steel is because of World War II technology. There you go. It all feeds into each other. We should leave it there. Elizabeth, just quickly, do you wear stilettos? Are you, are you, are you a stiletto wearer? I have been from time to time. And it's interesting because I'm very tall. And so I have felt over my life that when I wear a pair of stilettos, I'm being somewhat transgressive because I'm inevitably taller than most people in the room. And so that too adds a complicating factor because people will say, well, you shouldn't wear stilettos because you were too tall. Interesting limits that people feel about what we should and shouldn't wear. We talked about from the male gaze, but for women, when we think of sort of power dressing, of, that's sort of very 1980s kind of term, we tend to think of stilettos as well, don't, don't we? Or I'm thinking of, you know, in The Graduate, Mrs. Robinson, when she crosses her legs, I'm, I'm imagining she's wearing stilettos and it's that idea of power over, over men. The power that I think is being referenced there, and obviously I cannot speak for any individual and how they feel donning anything. We're all able to feel however we want. But having said that, I think that when people talk about power and women's high heels, I think it has to do with harnessing what was termed erotic currency. And my problem with the concept of erotic currency is that women only have it for a certain period in their lives. And so how powerful is it if your only currency is, is dependent on somebody finding you desirable? That doesn't seem very powerful to me. So I think that whereas a suit can be appropriate on a ring bearer at a wedding, a three-year-old ring bearer, and is appropriate as for a businessman and is appropriate for a husband burying his wife, a pair of high stilettos would be utterly inappropriate on a flower girl maybe okay on a business person, 100% not cool for a woman burying her husband at 85. And so my question is, okay, so what is the power that we're talking about? What is the power that's being referenced? And is it only limited to a very small window in a woman's life? That is absolutely fascinating. And again, the other word that you mentioned there, this idea of the high heel being transgressive is is really, you know, men wearing high heeled shoes is transgressive. Yeah. And so, correct. And and so because everything we wear is given meaning, the high heel has accreted a whole bunch of meaning, but that meaning can change at any time. And so I do think that the increased use of men wearing female referencing high heels, not Louis XIV referencing high heels, means that the meaning of the high heel is malleable, can change, and we can use it any way we want. Elizabeth, I've really enjoyed this. It's funny, you know, all these types of origin stories always have 
such deeper meaning and interesting theses and ideas. And this is a, a really good example of that. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you very much for your time. I, I'm absolutely transfixed by your wallpaper, which is <laughs> not transgressive at all, but just no, beautiful no. and wonderful. And um, anyway, <laughs> you have you. great taste. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. That was really fun. There we go. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope if you are a high heel fan, fanatic, whatever, then you enjoyed it particularly. Don't forget to tell your friends and family about our podcast. And if you've got a an origin story you'd like us to cover, could be anything. Could be anything from shoes to whatever it is that you're interested in. Get in touch. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com. But more than anything else, thank you very, very much for your company. See you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.